0: In the morning. In the morning. I feel so bad in the middle of the day. Yeah. I feel so bad in the, in the evening.
1: That's why I'm
0: going to the river to wash my sins away. I'm going Sister
2: Rosetta Tharp was an American singer, songwriter, guitarist, and a pioneer of mid-20th century music. She attained popularity in the 1930s and 40s with her gospel recordings, characterized by a unique mixture of spiritual lyrics and rhythmic accompaniment that was a precursor of rock and roll. She was the first great recording star of gospel music and among the first gospel musicians to appeal to rhythm and blues and rock and roll audiences, later being referred to as the original soul sister, and the godmother of rock and roll. She influenced rock and roll musicians including Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lee Lewis. When Johnny Cash gave his induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... He referred to Sister Rosetta Tharpe as his favorite singer when he would listen to her on the radio as a child.
3: WHBQ, and they had a program on there called Red Hot and Blue late at night where they played back then what they called race music. And there I heard some of my, my earliest heroes. And it was at the home of the blues record shop where I bought my first recording of Sister Rosetta Tharp
2: singing those great gospel songs. Willing to cross the line between sacred and secular by performing her music of light in the darkness of nightclubs and concert halls with big bands behind her, Sister Rosetta Tharp pushed spiritual music into the mainstream and helped pioneer the rise of pop gospel. I'm
0: so glad somehow I've got salvation now It keeps the spirit moving in my soul
2: Lottie Henry, a member of Tharp's backup vocal group, The Rosettes, remembers Sister Rosetta Tharp's
4: talent. She could play a guitar like nobody else. Nobody.
2: Here's Joe Boyd, American record producer and writer who played a crucial role in the recording careers of Pink Floyd, R.E.M., and 10,000 Maniacs.
5: I think Rosetta was a hugely important figure. Let's know, She was really unique as a guitar player. She had a big influence on somebody like Chuck Berry, who was one of the most influential guitar players in the world.
2: And here's Gordon Stoker from Elvis Presley's backing band, The Jordanaires. She did
6: incredible picking. That's what really attracted Elvis was uh, her picking. And he liked her singing too, but he liked that picking first <laughs> uh, because it was so different.
1: And here's
2: Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharpe's biographer.
1: She had a major impact on artists like Elvis Presley. When you see Elvis Presley singing um, early songs in his career, I think if you imagine that he is channeling Rosetta Tharp, it's not an image that I think we're used to thinking about when we think about rock and roll history. We don't think about the black woman behind the young white man.
2: Sister Rosetta Tharp was born on March twentieth, 1950, in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, not far from the Mississippi River. Her parents, Katie Bell and Willis Atkins, were both cotton pickers. Here's biographer Gail Wald and Ira Tucker, friend of Sister Tharp and lead singer with the American gospel group The Dixie Hummingbirds, talking about the influence that Rosetta Tharp's parents had on her as a child.
1: We don't know too much about Rosetta's father. What we do know about the father is that Willis Atkins could sing and so it's possible that some of her gift of singing came from her father. Her mother um, was an evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Her mother was incredibly passionate about the church.
7: Rosetta's mother, Miss Katie Bell, was what we called her. She was a very traditional person, and basically she was what, what we called a stomp down Christian. I mean, that's one that enjoyed stamping her feet and patting her hands and celebrating what she believes in. And the reason that I think that Rosetta really became such a strong woman was because of her mother. Because her mother, again, was the same type of person. She had no fear. She would take her guitar, she would take her tambourine, she would take a chair and she would sit outside and play for people and try to convert them and to get them to go to church. In 1921,
2: Katie Bell left Rosetta's father to become a traveling evangelist for the Church of God in Christ. Taking six-year-old Rosetta, she left Cotton Plant, Arkansas and joined the exodus of poor black southerners heading north. There was work in Chicago and even something more crucial for the young Rosetta. Migrants brought the blues from the Mississippi Delta and jazz from New Orleans. Here's Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award-winning record producer, and Gail Wald, Sister Rosetta Tharp's biographer, on this important time in Rosetta's life.
8: Rosetta is often seen as a country singer, but that's a fallacy. Her major development occurred very early. She moved to Chicago when she was six. She and Mother Bell joined Robert's Temple Church of God in Christ, and the Chicago Sanctified Church was bubbling with musicians and new songs, and so she was exposed to something that was new. It was not rural. It was an urban kind of religious singing.
1: It was at that church where she first really started performing, um, where she was the main attraction. There's a great story that has her being put when she's six years old on the top of the piano, um, holding a guitar, being put there so that she could be seen by the congregation, and playing and singing, and charming everyone with her talent and her precociousness. And when we
9: come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharpe, the godmother of rock and roll who influenced everyone from Elvis Presley to Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry.
0: That's a reason for living A reason for dying A darn good reason why a woman starts crying A reason for a mole A reason for a dimple But there ain't no reason why a man's so simple
7: Shout, sister, shout
9: This is our American story as you're listening to Elvis Presley. Some people think he was the king of rock and roll. But Elvis Presley said that the real queen of rock and roll, the godmother of rock and roll, was Sister Rosetta Tharp. And we're listening to her story right now. Jesse's doing a great job as always on these music stories. I would urge you, if you get a moment, put in the words Sister Rosetta Tharp. And didn't it rain on a YouTube search? And you will see something extraordinary. And everything we're talking about, you're going to see. The way she held that Gibson SG, a white Gibson SG, as she comes off a carriage in Manchester by a train station in a white mink coat, gets in front of a small uh, ensemble. There are a bunch of white British kids waiting for this African-American lady in a white mink coat holding a white Gibson SG, doing the duck walk, All the moves that you'd see from Chuck Berry and Keith Richards, she created so many of them. But let's now return to the story of Sister Rosetta Tharp.
0: I'm so glad somehow I've got salvation now. It keeps the spirit moving in my soul. Here's
2: Anthony Halebutt, Grammy Award winning record producer, talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp's early performances before her teenage years.
0: There's something within me Not just holding the reins
8: She told me that That's when she was a girl, not even ten, she was immediately seen as an all-purpose musician. She'd go to a revival and she'd play her guitar. And if the people would get happy afterward and shout, she would drop the guitar and run to the piano and accompany them with her piano chords. And then she might get up and cut a couple of dance steps herself. She was a phenomenal showwoman.
0: On Life Battlefield.
2: Throughout her teenage years, Sister Rosetta Tharp was taken by her mother from city to city to perform in churches, tabernacles, and revival meetings, winning the hearts of thousands with her demure looks, angelic voice, and unique guitar style. She soon became a nationwide celebrity within the church, and this Philadelphia church is one of the first she performed in back in the 1930s Church of God in Christ. Here's church parishioner Helen Henderson remembering Sister Rosetta Tharpe.
4: When I saw Rosetta, I was, a, I was about maybe 10 years old. Oh, she had, she had the most beautiful voice and the way she could speak to you. It made you feel different. You knew something was going on even if you didn't understand really what it was. And that's the way it was with me because I was a child.
2: And here's the pastor of that church, Robert Hargrove.
10: Many
3: of the hymns were expression of suffering and wanting to survive, many of them. And when she
10: came and they saw the expression of her, the freedom that she expressed in her singing and dancing, it woke up the congregation. It focused them on something that was on the inside that they never gave expression to.
4: Rosetta would start looking up. She didn't look at anybody, she looked up as if she saw God and it was as if God was in her and she was communing with him rather than with a human being.
2: When Rosetta Tharp was 19 years old in 1934, her mother married her off to a preacher, the Reverend Tommy Tharp. For the next four years, she and Tommy worked for the church. Her job was to draw the crowds while he preached from the pulpit. But in spite of her mother's good intentions, the marriage was not working out. Here's Rosetta Tharp's best friend, Roxy Moore, remembering her old friend while sitting behind the keys at the piano.
11: Look up! Look
4: up and see your maker before
11: Gabriel.
4: I met Sister Rosetta in the summer of 1937. She seemed a little bit glad that she was married, but she didn't seem to be very happy. And that's the reason I took to her because, you know, I wanted to just make her happy, make her feel as special as she really was. But I didn't have any idea that she and Tommy wouldn't make it.
2: Ira Tucker, longtime friend of Sister Rosetta Tharp and lead singer for the Dixie Hummingbirds, remembers Rosetta's first husband a little differently.
7: He was a tyrant. um, From what my parents used to say and talk about, Uh, he seemed to... um, come out of the real, real sub-old school and believed in the kind of almost caveman-like attitude towards women. She was just a meal ticket. She was a performer, and he used her to bring people to his churches, and he would put her up to sing. And after a few years, she had enough, and she said, you know what, I'm going to leave all of it. And she made that big jump.
2: Rosetta then left her husband and took her mother to New York. In a city full of nightclubs, Rosetta was soon noticed and offered a spot at the prestigious Cotton Club, singing to a white audience. But the song she was given by the men in charge made no mention of God. The lyrics were about pleasing her man. Here again is Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker.
7: It was like a bomb had dropped on gospel music when she flipped. It, it was like, what? You know, I can't believe she's... That's Sister Rosetta thought She's not supposed to be singing that kind of music.
0: Oh,
4: she was criticized and ostracized. I mean, the church people just, you know, just thought that she had just gone... Way off. Four
0: five five. four, five, five, four, five, five. Oh, four, five, five. Just find a star, just set the world on the fire. Four, five. five. Now, oh, maybe I'm wrong. wrong. maybe I'm right. But right. right or wrong, I'm gonna swing this song. Four,
7: five. Actually, it was hurtful to a lot of people because they felt as though. They had lost something. They had something, and it was great, but now it's gone. And they they viewed it almost like a death. You know, Rosetta is, she's gone. She went over. She's in, like, another world. Having discovered that
2: she loved God and nightclubs, Rosetta decided to sing gospel in church and join the secular world of show business at the same time. The offers began to pour in. She was wanted by all of the big bands of the day, and in October of 1938, she signed a contract with Decca Records. Sister Tharp was also beginning to stir controversy. Here's record producer Anthony Halebut on what was happening at the time.
8: Her first hit was a song called Rock Me. And the, the lyric is, Jesus hear me praying. She sang, won't you hear me praying? So when, when she came to the chorus, when she sang rock me and growled rock, it sounded really to many people like uh, an invitation and not to the altar.
2: Here's biographer Gail
1: Wald talking about this part of Sister Rosetta's life. Recording the song in that particular way marked her as someone who was having the nerve to reinterpret a spiritual song for a secular audience. I think there was also a piece of her that was just rebellious. I want a tall skinny
0: papa I want a tall skinny papa I want a
1: tall. She does some very risque material with Lucky Millinder most notably a song called Tall Skinny Papa which was a big hit for Millinder's band and she was the lead singer on that and she sings I want a tall skinny papa there's no way of misinterpreting I want a tall skinny papa for anything that has to do with um spirituality tall, tall,
4: tall I
0: a tall skinny
2: papa that's all- Roxy Moore also
4: remembers that song all too well The next thing I heard was this recording out a Rosetta with the tall, skinny papa. So I said, it can't be Rosetta. So I went and bought the record. And after I listened to it, I said, oh, my goodness, sister's out there singing that stuff. So when I, I saw her, I said, sister, I heard you tell Lucky Milliner that you weren't going to sing that stuff. She said, when I saw that contract, he had a clause in there that I had to sing whatever... He gave me to sing, she said, and I didn't know it. And I had a seven-year contract with him. She said, and I had to do it.
0: I have a question to ask you. Want you to tell me if you can. I want somebody to tell me just what is the soul of man.
2: Following the controversy with Tall Skinny Papa, Rosetta resolved to stick with the songs she knew best. Gospel songs. Her loyal followers back in the church got over the shock and stayed with her while she gained new fans that loved her music. This wasn't easy to pull off, but somehow, she did it. By the age of 25, Sister Rosetta Tharp was rated among the finest popular musicians of the day. In less than five years, she had established herself in a male dominated industry, singing the songs she chose to sing in her own distinctive way. She was now rich, famous, and officially gospel music's first superstar.
9: And when we come back, more on the life of Sister Rosetta Thar. Up
0: my head, up my head, I see trouble in the air, I see trouble in the air, up my head, up my head, I see trouble in the air. This is Our
9: American Stories, and now our final segment on the life of Sister Rosetta Tharp.
2: In a highly segregated society, black and white musicians performing together back then was considered highly taboo. However, Sister Rosetta Tharp was more than happy to defy convention.
0: All we hear church people say, they are in this holy way, they're strange.
2: Gordon Stoker, from a band called The Jordanaires,
6: remembers one such act of defiance. She was more or less a pioneer in asking us to even to perform with her. She called us her, her Four Little White Babies. And I thought it was so cute that you know that she referred to us as that boy. As, as that I thought that was something I'll never forget. And we just loved to sing with her because when she started snapping her finger, man, and started singing on a tune, you couldn't help but sing.
11: God get, get my
0: reward
6: I know the first time we worked with her they, they booked us we went to the, we went to the stage door and some man came to the door and uh, and one of us said, well we're we are the Jordanaires. and he said, mm, you, you're the Jordanaires? Well he said, this is going to be a surprise to our audience. Sister Rosetta didn't tell them that we were white. (laughs) She booked us, but she didn't tell them we were white. And when we first went out on the stage, they didn't really know how to take us, but then we started singing, working on the building.
2: By the age of 30, Rosetta had survived two brief and unhappy marriages. In 1951, Sister Rosetta Tharp invited 25,000 people to her next wedding to her manager, Russell Morrison, followed by a vocal performance at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. This was a massive publicity stunt. They would sell tickets to her fans and the recording rights to Decca Records. Here's
1: biographer Gail Wald. So she records uh, her wedding ceremony and a concert that follows it in 1951. 25,000 people come out and pay admission prices to attend her wedding. They bring wedding gifts for her. They bring crystal. They bring um, dishes for her. Someone even buys her a television set. It's a total showbiz Move, and at the same time, it's a it's a wedding ceremony um, conducted by a minister, a real wedding ceremony.
2: Despite criticism from her friends for marrying her own manager, Sister Rosetta Tharpe remained married to Russell for the next 22 years. Meanwhile, back in the Mississippi Delta region, young white musicians were just beginning to discover the raw energy and complex rhythms of African American gospel. George Klein, a friend of
3: Elvis Presley's, describes the scene. There was a hip thing happening in Memphis at that time. There was a little church and it was cool, it was a cool thing to do on Sunday nights only. You would go there and there would be Elvis and some of the other guys from the area. And it was unusual because back in those days, white people had to sit in the back and it was roped off. And we would sit back there and we would watch these black spiritual singers sing on Sunday night. The thing that gospel spiritual music brought to popular music was feeling. Gospel spiritual music put the guts and the feeling and the real soul into it. And uh, people like Elvis and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lewis and Carl Perkins and those guys, Buddy Holly if you will, they saw that and they adapted to that and that really was the essence of rock and roll. Thinking about it, Sister Rosetta Tharp, she had this great feeling, and that's what Elvis was looking for, feeling, because that's that's where it all came from. By the early 60s,
2: Sister Rosetta Tharp's influence was continuing to spread as yet another generation fell under her spell. Here's a recording of the one and only Bob Dylan talking about Sister Rosetta Tharp on the radio.
3: Sister Rosetta Tharp was anything but ordinary and plain. She was a big, good-looking woman and divine not to mention sublime and splendid. She was a powerful force of nature, a guitar-playing, singing evangelist.
0: It's a clean train. Everybody ride it, if you can.
3: You know, she traveled to England with Muddy Waters and a whole bunch of other blues performers in the early 60s. And I'm sure there are a lot of young English guys who picked up an electric guitar after getting a look at her.
2: In the summer of 1964, Sister Rosetta Tharp was booked to perform in a British gospel television music special. The musicians were all American, the audience English students. The venue, an old railway station just outside Manchester, England. Joe Boyd, the tour manager of the 1964 Folk, Blues, and Gospel Caravan, remembers that performance.
5: The Manchester gig was a curiosity in the middle of the tour for us it was kind of bizarre but you know we were all new to england and we were aware of all this interest in blues and gospel we all thought it was strange the setup with the audience on one platform and the musicians on the other and And she rose to the occasion. She loved the drama of the situation and sort of trying to bridge that gap between the platforms and sell the whole thing across the, the track to the audience.
2: By now, Sister Rosetta Tharp was 49 years old, and she had been touring on the road for 40 of those years. But even in cold, wet, windy England, the magic was still there. As she arrived on a horse-drawn carriage, walked to the stage, strapped on a white Gibson S.G., and began to sing, Didn't It Rain?
0: Didn't it rain, children? Rain, oh, yes. Didn't it, yes, didn't it? You know it didn't, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained.
2: While Rosetta was away in Europe, her mother was becoming increasingly frail. In 1968, Katie Bell died. For 53 years, she had stuck close to her daughter, through good times and bad, and the one constant figure reminding Rosetta of her faith in God. The loss took a heavy, heavy toll on Rosetta. She became increasingly depressed, and to make matters worse, she was diagnosed with diabetes.
0: There is a divine power. I believe it. I don't know about you, but I got to believe it, because I was raised that way.
11: I sing this song.
2: Made in 1970 in Denmark, this is the last known recording of Sister Rosetta Thart performing.
11: Just Lord, take
0: my hand, lead me on, and let me stand. I'm tired, you don't so hard, and I'm weak. My body is warm. Rosetta's
2: friend, Roxy Moore, noticed a black spot on Rosetta's foot one day and told her to have it checked out by a doctor. Roxy Moore and Ira Tucker described what happened next.
4: She wouldn't listen to anybody. So the next thing, foot started turning black. Then she did have to go to the doctor. Then they found out they had to cut a leg off.
11: Just same.
4: Sometimes she would call me and say, Sister, please come. Please come to see me. And I would say, All right, I'm coming. But the last few months I didn't go because, you know, Russell was acting like he didn't want nobody taking over from him.
7: When I went over to see her, and said she was in the bed and she was... And she, she would say, where's Russell? I say downstairs. And she would say, he's asking you about shows, right? And I said, no, he didn't say anything. He, yes, he is. He, he wants to know if I'm going back. She said, and I'm going back. But I'm not going to tell anybody when I'm coming back. But I am coming back. But she never did.
2: On October 9th, 1973, the eve of a scheduled recording session, Sister Rosetta Tharp passed away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as a result of a stroke. She was buried in Northwood Cemetery in Philadelphia. In 2008, some 35 years after Rosetta's death, the governor of Pennsylvania declared that the 11th of January will be known as Sister Rosetta Tharp Day. For our American stories, I'm Jesse
11: Evans.
9: And great job as always, Jesse. This is our American Stories. did
0: Yes, didn't it? You know it, did, didn't it? Oh, oh, yes, how it rained. Oh, said it
12: rained. Hanging out on the coast. Oh, well, those plans are long gone. And he said, they're gone. There goes my future, my everything, might as well,
9: kiss it all goodbye, there goes my life. And you're listening to Kenny Chesney singing There Goes My Life. It changed his life, for sure. Catapulted his career, this song raced to the top of the charts. And on this show, we love music. I think it was Aquinas who said, when we sing, we pray twice. And there's nothing like it. Shut up, just listen. We're going to do the story behind the story of this song, and we've done it for a few others. Gimme Shelter, what a story that is. Another Brick in the Wall. And we did it for Light My Fire. And this song, There Goes My Life, has quite a, a story behind it. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend Fellow writer, Wendell Mobley. And this is from Country Weekly. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell, Neil would tap into a tender secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, why don't we write about a teenage boy who got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I'd even had the words, there goes my life in my notebook for over a year. At that point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he fathered while he was still in high school. My daughter's name was Lexi, Wendell explained to me. We lost her when she was a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. So these good friends didn't know this until this moment. Though he had been Neil's friends for years, Wendell had never shared this part of his life. Quote, I've been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like now. Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at the right time. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing that first verse on the porch, says Neil, who's the father of two young daughters himself. I've got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had been and finding out something like that, man. Neil's voice trails off after that, overcome by the emotional impact. He pauses for a moment to collect his thoughts. That just got all over me. I broke down in front of my wife. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions poured out like water. We cried and wrote and sang and ate and cried and wrote and sang and ate says Neil, with a tension-releasing laugh. There wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close to me. Kenny Chesney recorded that powerful tune about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infancy to adulthood with a decided change of emotions along the way. The single took off with rocket speed, hitting number one after just a few weeks. But beyond its chart success, There Goes My Life has wielded a far-reaching impact Neil and Wendell have heard countless stories of estranged fathers and daughters actually reuniting, all because of their song. And of course, it changed for so many people the whole idea of carrying a child to birth that otherwise they may not have wanted to. Right after we were done writing that song, Wendell remembers, Neil and I talked about how this was a perfect marriage between personal and universal storytelling. It's these kinds of stories when you know it's happening all over that is really so rewarding to hear. So I wanted to take you to an ASCAP Songwriters Conference in Boston. And I love these ASCAP Songwriters Conferences and you hear us play them. Wendell was there and so was Kenny Chesney. And here's Kenny giving props and respect to the writer and the man whose whose story turned into this song Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney.
12: I will tell you that when I I remember the first time I heard this song and my producer, Buddy Cannon, uh, we were uh, not in his Cadillac, Craig, but we were in his truck. And he goes, you got to hear something. And he played me this song. And the first words out of my mouth were, are you sure that we can record this song? Because I knew it was one of those songs that that you just don't come across every day, you know? And it was a... Um, As a songwriter, this is the best bridge to any song I've ever heard. This bridge <laughs> yeah, me. kills me. kills so, me. I, yeah. I cry when he sings it, freaks me out every time. So this, this song right here, I just want you guys to know, I think it might've, was it, it might've been the first single off of the When the Sun Goes Down record, it I was, think. It was, yeah. So, um, but I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck hearing this song and it was just, I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life. That's how much I love this song.
9: Help me out, Kenny. And like Sinatra, who always thanked his writers, uh, Kenny Chesney always, and all these country artists, always give props to the writers, because without the song, well, what do you have? And so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way... For my money, I like Wendell's version better. But you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley.
11: All he could think about was too young for this Got my whole life ahead Hell, I'm just a kid myself How am I gonna raise one? Now
12: see that's already a
11: great song. Already. But all he could see were his dreams Going up in the smoke so much for ditching this town, hanging out on the coast. Oh, those yeah. plans are long gone. And he said, Let go.
9: And that spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer in the end sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and A
12: few thousand diapers later and That mistake you thought he made it covers up the refrigerator, oh yeah And he loves that little girl Mama waiting to tuck her in As she fumbled up the steps She smiled back at him Dragging that teddy bear to sleep Little eyes and bounce and curls And he smiles
11: There goes my life
12: With Abercrombie clothes and 15 pairs of shoes In his American Express He checked the oil, slammed the hood Said you're good to go She hugged them both And headed off to the West
11: Coast
9: The first chorus, There Goes My Life, Resignation. Second chorus, There Goes My Life, Little Girl running up the stairs. Third chorus, There Goes My Life. She's out of here. The house is empty. Absolutely beautiful.
12: There goes my the story of the
9: story behind the story of There Goes My Life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And great job to the whole crew here as always.
12: There goes Life.
11: baby good baby good goodbye
12: there goes my
9: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories, and we'd love to hear them. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org, and they're some of our favorites. And today we have one of our regular contributors, Stephen Residiak, sharing a father-daughter story. He shares about parental love and how it's never relinquished by the passage of time distance, or circumstance. Here's Stephen.
10: For as long as I can remember, the beach and I have been the best of friends. The sun, the surf, the sand, and me. That is, until Friday afternoons in the approach of another summer weekend. Suddenly, my BFF and I find our seemingly forever friendship mysteriously morphing into that of estranged acquaintances. Summer Saturdays and Sundays means crowds. And while my oceanic pal may like the additional company, I don't. So our friendship temporarily hits the pause button, only to resume Monday mornings when the sun worshipers camped along the ocean's edge, are once again, considerably fewer. She knew this. She even mentioned it when she called. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. This was our daughter, Tracy, inviting Karen and me to go to the beach with her on Sunday morning a summer sunday at the beach seriously my response was the same as my wife's absolutely let's go i mean how could we not so there we were driving over the sand just short of the waves early before the arriving crowds would begin laying claim to their temporary pieces of salty real estate. Tracy had mentioned that the tide and temperature might be favorable should I decide to bring my surf poles. I was impressed that she paid attention to such things, knowing her information had more to do with surfing then, with my desire to attract some fish to the business end of my two baited lines. After watching the way the waves were breaking, Tracy chose for us the optimum place to park. I positioned my truck a safe distance from the surf and then got down to the business of rigging my gear while Tracy began waxing her board. Once our pre-water preparations were completed, we stepped into the sea simultaneously for different reasons, but ultimately with the same goal in mind. I wish I could say that Tracy rode some awesome waves that morning or that I landed a record catch, but neither would be true. The waves were gentle and my baited lines remained untouched. But none of this mattered because we weren't there to surf or to fish anyway. We came to the beach that morning to spend some time together. Although we'd plenty of phone conversations, Karen and I hadn't seen Tracy for most of the summer, even though she lived just eight miles away. Working nonstop at a couple of jobs, Sunday would be her one day off and she wanted to spend it with her mom and dad, which is just what she did. Following her college graduation, Tracy began working at one, then two, then three jobs, all in our little resort town. When the autumn arrived and her summertime positions departed, so too did she for a job in Hawaii returning last June she found another local beach based position and when the summer season ended she returned to Hawaii in Waikiki oh to be young I once wrote a piece about Tracy growing up and how I was looking forward to her many milestones yet to come chubby little legs taking their first, uncertain steps. First words, first tooth, first grade, of high school and boyfriends, driving lessons, the college years. Suddenly, 5,000 miles separate us, and these milestones have come and gone, faster than I could ever have imagined. But still, my love and concern for her well-being remains everlasting, never to be relinquished by the passage of time, by distance, or by circumstance. And so, it's with a dash of melancholy and a dose of parental pride that I reluctantly concede my little blue-eyed blonde baby dear has indeed grown up, And to be perfectly honest, this pop couldn't be any prouder. Had it been anyone else, I would have immediately said no. But this wasn't just anyone else. Should Tracy one day return and again ask if we'd like to spend another summer Sunday with her and my best friend, the beach? Of course. You already know what my answer is going to be. And good job on that,
9: Faith. And that was Stephen Residiak sharing a father-daughter story. And we talk a lot about fathers. And so often you hear about fathers and sons, but the impact of a father on a daughter, a mother on a son, a mother on a daughter. My goodness, we know what happens when people don't have either a father or mother, the hole it creates. Stephen Residiak's story, the story of his bride Karen, his daughter Tracy, his blue-eyed blonde baby girl Tracy, here on Our American Stories. We're back with our American stories and now we bring you the story of the unlikely relationship between two of New York City's finest, a firefighter named Nils Jorgensen and the late billionaire David Koch, a leader of Koch Industries which employs 67,000 Americans. Nils was off duty on 9-11 when the first plane struck the World Trade Center. He complied with a total recall order for all off-duty firemen to report to their firehouses. And that's where Nils picks up the story.
13: I started driving to my firehouse, and then all of a sudden on the radio, I hear second plane is struck. I could somewhat see on my drive the smoke and whatnot, and I'm flying over the Verrazano Bridge, and my wife calls me frantically, where are you, where are you? And I said, I'm on the bridge, I'm going in. And she says, no, you're not listen to what your dad my dad would always tell me if there's ever a recall you follow it or you could end up dead and no one is looking for you and for some unknown reason there was no traffic it was eerie and i'm flying and i'm going but wait a minute i don't have my fire gear what the hell am i gonna do she hung up the phone screaming at me and my wife doesn't curse she said those effing buildings are gonna go down and you'll effing die go to your command where you're supposed to And I heard my father in my ear, and he just, my father doesn't say a lot, but when he says something, it's profound. And I remember him always saying, kid, never be a freelancer. You follow your orders, you follow your training. Something real bad goes down. And this was after the 93 bombing, because I was at that. And we used to always talk and say, it's gonna happen again. And he said, you follow your orders, go to your firehouse, get your gear, and you get your further pending orders. I veered off the highway, went down into Brooklyn where I worked, I checked in, I was the first one, I called into command and they said you get 12 guys, grab a city bus and get over there. And guys came streaming in and we were watching the TV and just as we run out the street to get the city bus to take us, we see the tower go down, the first one. And uh, I believe the second tower hit was the first one to collapse. And I I dropped to my knees, and I started crying and praying. And the guys looked at me. I said, guys, now our, our truck from our house was gone. It was at the scene. So we were in the empty house and, you know, convening and deploying from there. And I said, guys, 114 is dead. That's our truck. And they're, like, looking at me. I go, what are you talking about? I said, when I came in the door, I heard our boss, Dennis, on the radio, 114 truck with 1084 is our code of on scene. We're at Albany and West. Where do you need us? And the nickname of our truck is Tally Ho. And he said Tally Ho, respond into the command post, West in Albany, for further orders. That was the last I heard from my lieutenant. His rookie son, or as we call a probie, his probie son was assigned that day in another ladder company, and he was killed. And that lieutenant ended up saving our crew because as they were going into the building, he saw what he thought to be partial collapsing. And he told the guys, turn around, this building's coming down behind us. And as they turned around and ran, they dove under a truck, the building came down, the guys 40 feet, 50 feet behind them are under it and they're dead and they're in the pile. And my lieutenant who unfortunately did lose his son saved our crew unbeknownst to us, as that was going on, we got into the bus and as we were coming over the Brooklyn Bridge to help and we got into the city and started running toward it, the second building just came down. And I wasn't there in the building when it collapsed and I would never claim to be, but I made my best effort to get there. And the crew of us that got there were horrified because we knew that our on shift platoon, our guys that we loved and worked with, were probably underneath that pile. And by the grace of God, that lieutenant saved that shift of five guys plus himself. But unfortunately, the other ladder company 105, which I had actually was my first command in the city where my lieutenant's son was working, his son was killed. And the strange part about it was the senior man, the older firefighter working that day on that shift with his son was working with me on the day of 1993's bombing, and he was my senior man, looking over. <sighs> <I'm> sorry. <sighs> he, was, he was looking over my shoulder. And later on, <sighs> hours later after the, the evening of the first bombing in 93, he looked around, and he said, you know what, kid? He goes, these mutts didn't do it right. They blew it up in the middle. But if they did it in the corner by a column they would have beat us today and the building would have dropped and he said to me but the next time they come back they'll do it right don't don't kid yourself for a second and that man hank miller he died he died that day he almost prophesied it and then just and then we just we we regrouped and redeployed onto the main pile because there was it was confirmed, a couple people that were still alive and we were working on shuttling gear in and out and trying to just move debris and whatnot. And I was with an older guy and we branched off maybe 100 yards to another section and we were just down in a hole underneath a bunch of steel and all you could hear was sand dropping every once in a while like as if it was rolling down a hill and it was eerily quiet, and then you would just hear some hissing, and that was the gas lines that were ruptured. And he just said, kid, what do you hear? And I said, I hear the hissing, and I, I hear the debris, the, the, it was just everything was pulverized into gray sand. And he said, no, I know that, but what else do you hear? And I stopped for a second, and I said, I don't hear anything. He said, that's right, he says, because everyone's dead, we're wasting our time. He goes, no one's coming out of this kid they're all gone. He goes, look at the concrete, look at the steel, what happened to it. You think bodies are gonna survive through that? And he was right, he was right. Everybody was pulverized and everybody was just crushed and it was, it was just horrible. And we stayed till about four o'clock that following morning we couldn't breathe. We couldn't, we just, we, we were caked and filled with dust in our throats and our eyes couldn't see at points in time and the lieutenant just decided he says guys we need to regroup We've got to try to get back to our firehouse clean up get some supplies and get right back here in the morning so we hopped on a city bus and uh, we walked down to the battery tunnel and they told us there'd be buses hopefully to get us back over to brooklyn and we returned to brooklyn and the guy couldn't for some reason i can't remember why he couldn't go up the main street where we were on so he dropped us off so we went we walked up the hill and we were all having a hard time breathing and it felt like we swallowed a box full of razor blades. and I, I was really having trouble walking up the hill and I, I was it was the worst sore throat you've ever had but then down from your roof of your mouth to the insides of your stomach and I remember one of the older guys with us he said you know what guys were all dead I said, no, no, Dan, we made it. He goes, no, you don't understand. He goes, this crap we breathed in, we're all dead men. And out of the 20 guys that were there that day from our crew, I think, I think eight of us have cancer. And some, a few of the guys, I've been blessed with only one, but a few of the guys have had three different cancers. And by the grace of God, those particular guys are alive. One of my other dear friends came down with three different cancers, and he's been dead now for almost two years. And that guy was right; he he wasn't right about all of us, but there's a lot of us that that died after the fact from those hours—the first day, second day, fiftieth day, eightieth day of being down there. And we went back to the firehouse when we cleaned off, and we just got the caked dust out of our, trying out of our throats, out of our eyes. We we we. We got some fresh clothes, but the dirty, toxic clothes that we were wearing, we didn't throw them out. We threw them in the wash. We threw them in the firehouse laundry. We threw them in our locker where they sat for a couple of weeks until we got a chance to do laundry. And then, you know, you'd have your gear in the subsequent days, and your fire gear was filthy and caked with this toxic crap, and it's in the back of your car. And then if you're lucky enough to get a day off or half a day off, You try to clean the car out and then you throw your baby seat in the back, not knowing that a couple of years later, they're going to say, oh, this stuff was really, really bad and toxic. And now you're going, oh, my God, my kids breathe this crap, too.
9: And you've been listening to 9-11 firefighter Nils Jorgensen. More of Nils' remarkable story here on Our American Stories.
1: Hey,
5: all This is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. And we would love your continued support. If you feel so inclined, give us a tax-deductible donation at ouramericannetwork.org. And while you're there, submit your story, too. With your help, we can bring you the very best stories out there. More of our American stories after the break.
9: And we continue with our American stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story. Nils's colleague predicted that they would get sick from the work that they did on 9-11 and in the aftermath. And tragically, he was
13: right. Long story short, they found it out, they diagnosed the the leukemia. The way they explained it to me was it's different than an organ cancer. It's not like a uh, stage one, two, three or four of, you know, colon or liver. Leukemia is like a car driving on a road, as they explained. You get to a cliff, the wheels go off, you're dead. I said, all right, doc, where am I? He goes, well, your your front wheels are off the cliff. You probably had about another three or four days to live. We're gonna try to intervene with the spleen, get all the swelling down. They drilled into my hip. They found out exactly what cancer it was and it's the rarest leukemia you can have. There's 49 different ones. There's only 500 cases in all of North America a year, and I was the seventh 9-11 rescuer in six months to come down with it, and a couple of the guys had already died. And my cancer doctor said to me, he goes, it's statistically impossible that that many of you have this rare of a leukemia. By the grace of God, I was given very, very high doses of chemotherapy. It's, I believe, I'm given it in a layman's perspective, but it was, the drug is called Cladribine. When they give you seven days of non-stop chemotherapy in these massive bags, IV bags, and it's, from what I was told by my doctor, it's almost like the equivalent of two years of chemo jammed into a week. Um, burns out your bone marrow entirely in the hopes that your own seedling marrow will regenerate. And my angel on earth, and I haven't got a chance to recapture with him, and I regret this, and shame on me for not... I had a male nurse named Mike Nunez, and Mike Nunez was my angel on earth, and there was many other nurses, but Mike was my main guy. And he explained to me, he said, listen, he goes, I'm gonna come in, I have to wear a hazmat suit. We're gonna start you up on this. I go, whoa, Mike, a hazmat suit? He goes, listen, he goes, you'll kind of get this because you're a fireman. He goes, this stuff exposed to air is so caustic that it'll burn through plastic. He said, but in your vein and in your body, it's going to do its job. It'll burn. You're going to feel like you're burning your entire body. But that means the drug is working. So I said, well, Mike, I'm forget it. I don't want it. He goes, then you're going to die. And I got my three young kids at the time. I mean, this is eight years ago. So I got 14, 11, and nine. And I'm like, whoa, I got to do this, man. And it was like I was flashing back to my life. My dad was in the fight of his life in 1978 when I was 10 years old. was basically told he had an end stage, not Hodgkin's lymphoma, but if he was willing to be a test pilot for a a new drug at the time, they would try it on him in the hopes that it would work. And if it didn't, he would die. And he, believe it or not, is still here. He's 80. And I said to my father, and I called him up, And my father is just, just one of the greatest guys that's walked this earth. He used to get up at four in the morning on a Thursday, and my mom would drop him down to a train, which from Staten Island he'd take to a ferry, and then a subway to downtown Brooklyn, because he was assigned to a desk job when he got cancer. And I'm, I'm sorry to go on a tangent, but it's something I just have to express. And this guy would get up at 4 in the morning on Thursday, and Thursday was his treatment day, and he'd go to work. And then at noon, instead of going to lunch, he'd get back on the subway to the ferry, to the train, and my mom would pick him up and bring him to the cancer center. And they'd juice him up with some heavy nuke probably similar to what I got. But back in 78, it was cutting edge. He was a test pilot for a lot of people. And he'd get home, and within two hours, he'd be vomiting everywhere and and diarrhea and, and... and as a 10-year-old, it was heartbreaking. Because <sighs> I'd go in and I'd wipe the vomit off his mouth. But he couldn't drink because it would just projectile right out. So I'd just try to keep him comfortable and I'd wipe his mouth and clean him and care for him. And the next day, he'd be sick as can be. But then it was weird. After midnight on Friday, it would start to subside. And Saturday morning... He'd put on a robe and he'd come down and he'd try to sit in a chair and he'd have some orange juice and some water and start to rehydrate. And then Sunday, he'd ask my mom to make him eggs and toast and black coffee. And on Monday, he'd get back on the train and the ferry and the subway and he'd repeat that process two weeks later and he did that for four years. And this guy is still in remission till his days, 80 years old. So I called him up the night before my treatment started. Mike said to me, you're going to feel like you're burning and that's the minute it starts. And I said, dad, how'd you do it? He said, kid, keep low, which means stay below the fire. He goes, keep low and you'll do it. And that was it. He said, I love you. And he hung up the phone. Mike came in, Mike Nunez, the nurse came in, and when he started the IV, he jumped out of the line and it splashed. And he's got a hazmat suit and I'm laying there and all of a sudden the IV tube starts smoking and going on fire. And I'm like, Mike, Mike, what the frig? You're not putting that in me. He goes, Nels, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. He goes, I gotta start it all over. He goes, you're gonna be okay, but you have to take this or you're gonna die. And I thought about my old man, the conversation we just had, and I thought about those three little kids who came in a little while before that, my wife. I said, all right, Mike hit me, let's do this. And about a second after he he hooked me into the vein with the IV, I started feeling this burning going up my arm, and then it was up my shoulder, and then it was in my head, and then it was within 20 seconds, it was flush through my whole body. And I've been burned before, I've been, been caught, I've ended up in the burn center, and it's the worst feeling in the world when you're trapped. And that's how I felt. But it was from the inside out. And it was, it was so painful. But I wouldn't take a pain med because I have a brother with, with prescription med problems and what have you and I didn't want to go that way. I'm thinking maybe it's in the genes, I don't know. And I laid there for the first six days and I felt like I was burning to death from the inside out of my body. And I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And I had a vision of my mother-in-law My beloved mother-in-law had died six months before I was sick. This woman went to church every day. Beautiful Irish woman. And she called me her boyfriend because we'd sit and talk. Because I understood her. I got her. It's the Irish thing. We like to talk. And she came to me in a vision, and I was praying to die. And unbeknownst to me, I thought it was hallucinations. There was this raging thunderstorm going on. But it was really a raging thunderstorm. And she came to me, and I had blips of all these people I loved who had died. But then all of a sudden, she's facing me, and she's laughing. And she says, hi, my boyfriend. And we called her Nan, and I said, Nan, I want to come home. Please take me with you. I can't do this anymore. I got to go. I'm ready. And she smiled, and she goes, no, not yet, my boyfriend. She goes, you're going to be all right. It's going to hurt, but you'll be okay. I'll see you later. And I'm, I'm grabbing for her, and she goes... I had a doctor who was atheist, and I told her the story. And she goes, oh, you're seeing things? I said, well, I don't know. But I, I conveyed it to her, and I'm not going to lie to you. The chemo messed my mind up a little bit, too. It was brutal. She sends a shrink in to talk to me, and he's a rabbi. He's a Jewish, Jewish doctor. And he starts laughing, and he goes, I believe you. You're fine. What else do you want to talk about? I said, what do you mean? He says, pay me for an hour. I said, you want to watch the Yankees? We watched the Yankee game. So for seven days, stuff burned through my body, but it worked, and I'm here. And it was hard going through it, and it was even harder on my wife and my kids, but I'm here, man, and I'm lucky.
9: And you're listening to Nils Jorgensen. I'm here, man, and I'm lucky. I cried and I prayed and I wanted to die. And then he had these visions, and there was that sweet, beautiful old Irish lady praying for him, loving on him. And when we come back, more of Nils Jorgensen's story here on Our American Stories. with Our American Stories and firefighter Nils Jorgensen's story, Nils contracted the rarest form of leukemia from his work on 9-11 and its aftermath. Thankfully, the cancer's in remission, and Nils was more than thankful. He noticed that Coke Industries leader David Koch had given hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research and to New York City hospitals, and he partially credits David for his being alive. And so Nils, well... He wanted to show his gratitude.
13: You know what the problem is today in the world? No one is grateful anymore. There is no gratefulness. It's just, it's just gone. And that was the main emphasis of my letter. But all I wanted to do with that letter was just say, Hey, sir, thank you. This is somebody you've helped. You have no idea who I am. No idea what my life's about. But I want you to know you've blessed my life. And that was the only reason I did it. I was sitting there one day, and I was, I was just feeling thankful for everything. And I saw them hammering him on TV over some political nonsense. And I didn't agree with everything the man said or did or stood for, but they were blistering this guy over something so minute. And it upset me so much. And I'm like, don't they realize the good that this man has done? And, and, I, and I just said, you know what? I want him to know that there's people out there that do appreciate it. And that was the main reason why I sat down at that very moment in, in my best grammar school penmanship because I, I'm not a computer guy and I'm technologically horrible and I probably would have sent an email to, I don't know, Australia somehow or whatever. It wouldn't have gotten there. So I said, let me write an old school letter and let me look up the address for where they're headquartered and let me send it in the hopes... That he gets it, and a couple weeks later, I was like, oh, I guess maybe they didn't get it, and it's okay. I, mean, I didn't want anything. I wanted nothing from him. I wanted to just say thank you. <laughs> and I got a call, you know, from Christine Nichols, from you know, I guess it's his public relations folks, and I was blown away. And I was like, wow, you know what? This man knows that I'm grateful, and that meant everything. Mr. Coke invited me to the dedication of his new cancer wing, at Sloan Kettering. And I'm sitting there and Mr. Koch came up with his wife and he's just such a lovely guy. And he says, Nelson, I'm so glad you made it here today. And And I said, you know, Mr. Koch, I didn't expect a free launch or anything like that. And I says, but I just wanted to get a chance to shake your hand and say, thank you. I said, you know this very well as a fellow survivor. If it wasn't for research and it wasn't for people devoting their life to the cause of cancer, we wouldn't be here. And he smiled and he says, You're so right. And he, he just said, Thanks for the acknowledgement. And I says, Mr. Koch, thank you, sir. It's my honor. And we parted ways. And, you know, I said, Oh, hopefully I'll see you when the building's completed if we, if we get around to it. And that was my last interaction with him, but it was wonderful. It was so funny. I took my kids to the museum in New York a couple of weeks ago. And I'm walking in the David Koch wing, and I'm going, "Oh my God, this guy! This guy helped everybody, you know." And, and then we walk somewhere else. I forgot where we were in the city. And I, oh, we walk past the Metropolitan Opera to get to our car, and I look up, and there's his wing there. And I'm saying, "Wow, this guy did a lot of good for this city," and uh, yeah, and just a gentleman, just a, just a, He seemed to me a humble, unassuming gentleman. And I walked away, going, "Wow, I can't believe this guy's like this huge." business titan it just he just didn't come off that way you know i was expecting this swaggering almost john wayne guy with a, with a chip and maybe you know a, a second to put out his hand and say yeah, how you doing and keep on going but he stood there for a good few minutes and just chatted and it was it was really nice it was a great memory i have really great memory of him and i'm sure some of my union brethren you know he's big business and we're not and blah blah hey listen I don't know the last pro-union guy who's dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to cancer research or other philanthropic causes that help people. So I tell him, go stick it. see, that's the problem in, in, you know, everyone gets a trophy now, is if your trophy's bigger or you have more trophies, people are upset. But it's like, wait a minute, back when I was a kid, you know, you had to work for stuff. You know, I studied for four years to become a fire lieutenant to get a $20,000 a year raise. And I say that to my son. My son's 19, and he's actually training to be a pilot, and he's he's not sure. He's in a limbo. He doesn't know what to do. And I said, son, let me explain something to you. I said, you're in America. I said, no one can tell you no, unless, God forbid, you have a huge disability or whatnot. And even then, you could probably still do it. And I said, "Don't tell your mother we're talking like this, because my wife has a no-curse policy. So I have to be really guarded. She's tough. And I'm very scared of her. She's five foot two, and she's she's the drill sergeant around here, but the best." I said, "Son, no one owes you sh** and no one owed me sh**." And I said, "Guess what I did last year? I said I paid off my house after 25 years. It's paid off. Not a big house, just a ranch, not special, but it's paid off." I said, I bought it when I was 24 years old. I got the, the quickest down payment I could scrape together. And my father said, at the minute you can buy a house, you buy a house. And I did. And there was many, many months. Once my wife stopped working and the baby started coming, well, I went, dad, this is a mistake. He said, kid, just keep as you're going. Don't worry about it. It'll be paid off. And I said that to my son. I said, guess what? You'll do the same thing. I says, but no one's going to give it to you. So I'll help you along if I can. You know, I pay for his flying lessons because it's not cheap. And, and I says, but I want you to put it to good use. And he's like, Dad, I will. I will. And that's the problem. Everybody feels like someone owes them something. No one owes me nothing. And I say to people, they rip me all my pension, my pension. And I say, listen, I said, I know pensions are a tricky subject. I said, but I did a lot of dangerous, crazy, dirty shit for my pension. And I said... If it's so much money, why am I still out there working with, I don't have active cancer, thank God, but, you know, it's in me or whatever. I said, why would I be out there working as a stagehand if I made so much money? I said, so thank you. Yeah, I'm grateful for my pension, but I earned every penny of it. And, and I said, the beautiful thing is everything I owned, I worked for. And that is so hard to instill in people. And that's why, you know, Mr. Koch and his brother were so wildly successful because somebody instilled that, the lack of fathers. And I understand sometimes divorce or sometimes death, it happens, but to be brought into the world and from day one never have someone looking after you, that's heartbreaking. And unfortunately, it's omnipresent in today's society, and I don't care what race, it's everywhere. Unfortunately... January of 2012, my career was ended. I was retired off the department medically, uh, because with with certain cancers, you're not allowed to return to fire duty. And that, to me, it sounds pathetic, but that was probably the worst day of my life, one of them, because I, I lost what I did. I lost my priesthood. I lost being a fireman and helping people. And one of the weirdest things that totally set me straight after I got cancer, I was really down about losing the job. And my wife said to me, what's wrong with you? I said, I I can't handle not being a fireman. And she goes, listen to me. She goes, you got a second chance at life. You got these kids, you have me. She goes, you're gonna have to get past it. And one night I'm at dinner and I'm cleaning a plate and my kids are still sitting there. And my daughter goes, You know what one of the best things about daddy getting cancer was and my son goes yeah he's home with us for dinner all the time i washed off the plate and i put it in the dishwasher and i walked out and i cried but it's okay i'm alive and i'm watching my children grow thank god my uh, oldest daughter emily who's 22 actually was inspired by my nursing care in methodist hospital in brooklyn new york I spent a month, um, she was inspired to become a nurse and she's starting her nursing career next week. just been hired as an emergency room nurse and I'm so very proud of her and hopefully that's the silver lining of cancer. Someone now is going out to the world to help and make a difference.
9: And what a story, what a storyteller. And that's Nils Jorgensen's story. And what gratitude you hear in his voice, what insight, what wisdom. You've met a family. Let's face it, you met his dad You met his wife I'm afraid of her too And I think we're smart We marry someone we're a little bit afraid of And we met his kids What smart kids, right? Something good did come of that cancer He got to eat with his kids every day And he's so right No one owes you nothing I can't say the other word The FCC prohibits us But in Brooklyn Well, it's not really a curse word there It's just another word and I know because I spent a lot of time in that part of the country. And his affection for David Koch, my goodness, a fireman and a billionaire. And they can just treat each other as fellow men, not vilifying each other, just trying to meet where humanity meets. And my goodness, what humanity in this story. And we'd love yours. You know, in the end, cancer takes so much. But there's opportunity, and there are cracks of light from it, too. And your stories are always welcome here in Our American Stories, especially all the toughest battles in our life, we learn a lot about our family, ourselves, our God. And my goodness, he learned about all three. And he's still out there serving. You know, he said he lost his priesthood. He lost being a fireman. He lost being able to help people. Well, that's not true. And he's out there still helping people. He's just got a different color, a different uniform. But service is in the guy's heart. In the end, well, some people go into business and they serve. And then they take the fruits of that work and they give back. And all of these choices are good ones. Fireman, businessman, teacher, coach, starting a business. That's what we do here in Our American Stories. We don't pit people against one another. We celebrate all of it. Every hamlet in this country, small to big. And again, we love that you're listening and supporting our our show. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Nils Jorgensen's story here on our American stores.